Hello, and thank you very much for downloading the, this episode of the Track One podcast. Now, this week we're going to be taking a summary trip to the very summary planet of Tara and having a look at the new, old, but new um, novelization by David Fisher, sort of replacing the um, old, old, new uh, novelization by Terence Dix. <laughs> So we'll be doing some, some uh, we'll have a look at both of the books, I think, and also have a really good overview, hopefully, of David Fisher and Doctor Who and show a much underrated author and uh, writer of stories for Doctor Who a bit of love that he really deserves. So I'm Sai, and I'm here today with... Oh, well, I'm Andrew. Um, this is my first podcast. Um that's about all I can tell you. I was old enough to watch Andrew Dutra when it went out in 1978 when I was seven. So, there you go. It's a cracking good story. Um, I'm Daniel. I'm also old enough to remember it. I just remember the first episode, though, um, and also uh, have a copy of the, the book because I'm really that old, and this book is older than some of my friends. In fact, a lot of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm uh, Dave. Um I was born after the Android Zatara was on the telly, so I think the first time I saw it was on UK Gold back in the day, in the early 90s, 94-ish, um, the key to time season. And yeah, it's a, it deserves more love than it gets, I think. Absolutely. Well, my first experience of the Android Zatara was the book, and here is... For those of you who can't see it at home, it's my rather crumpled book from 1981, <laughs> which I bought on my sixth birthday. So it's one of the first Doctor Who books I ever owned. And um, I remember choosing this one because it had canine rather tiny on the cover. So that was always going to be a draw. Um, but we'll we'll come on to that one later because, of course, we've got the new version by David Fisher. Or rather, it's a, a version that's a couple of years old. Um, because it was originally written, um, this version, um, in 2011 for the audiobook range, which is where I first encountered this version. So if any of you, did any of you hear that, or are you coming to the novelization, the book, um, for the first time? Yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't get the audio version at all. So I was quite pleased when here it was coming out as a book. So I'm quite interested to, to read it, hear it, whatever you want to say, but. I did, but I didn't splash out and buy the audio. Perhaps I'm a bit tight. So I was very pleased to hear they were releasing it, and likewise, The Stones of Blood. Yeah, same here. I, I hadn't um, listened to it. I, I understand it's read by John Leeson, so that's quite handy because he'll, he'll do his um, canine voice as well. Um, but, yeah, I, I, when I, I heard it, they were both going to be released. I thought, well, that's great. And uh, certainly as Androids of Tara is one of my favourite stories, and the the original novelisation, we're going to touch on that later, it's, Probably from Terence's, shall we, shall we say, his lean period. Um, <laughs> and it's a very good book. Um, and uh, I'd certainly I, I remember enjoying reading it as a child. But uh, this has got a little bit bit more meat on the bone, I think. How about you, Dave? Um, no, I haven't listened to the audio either. Um, I felt a bit left out because you've all held up your original version of the novel. But I've never read the original version of the novel. Oh, no. Um, so, no, um but I believe there's quite a few changes between the two versions. Yes, I mean, um, the original version is very much your Terrence sticks straight down the line. Um, this is what was on TV, and you're going to get everything that's on TV, and that's about it. So he does a few additions sort of here and there, but it's one of the more straightforward. Um, if you've seen this on TV, you'll know exactly what's going on, and this is exactly sort of representing uh, that, really. So... Although both both um, books do start with a chapter entitled "The Doctor Goes Fishing," which made me smile. <laughs> yes, it's obviously the the thing to do. Um, but yeah, I mean, David Fisher obviously takes his story and expands on it quite quite brilliantly. I think um, in the new version. Um, so right from the start with the. Um, with the details of what happened on Tara to make sure that the to so that we understand why the peasants could create 
um, androids, which seems a bit of a strange thing to do on t- when they're on TV, <laughs> yes. and um, sort of sort of expands on the history of Tara and its ruling families. It's a very vivid um, sort of potted history. I seem to remember that that uh, David Fisher, when he came to do his novelisation of the Leisure Hive, did something similar with um, developing the idea of of how Ar- the Arglins came into doing what they did. Um, and it's it, it, it's sort of reminded me of that very much sort of very colourful characters, including um, one of my favourites was Lucretia, the great aunt of Count Grendel, who married five husbands in rapid succession, only one of whom survived his second wedding anniversary. Very- <laughs> it certainly paints a no-nonsense world, doesn't it? I mean, I think at one point he said that all the ex-wives, if the Grax decided, oh, I want to divorce this woman. They don't divorce them. They wall them up in the castle walls and just let them die. Yeah, it's very gothic horror, isn't it, yes. really? <laughs> I, I liked all the names that he came up for, for uh, all the um, people, Septimus Hornhand and things <laughs> like that, which is just, yeah, which really sounds like it fits on Tara, I thought. Isn't there? There's a Zagreus in here somewhere as well. I think. There is, isn't there? Yes. Yes. Zagreus the Elder. Yes. It it does expand on that. I have to. I have to confess. I rather foolishly lent my copy to my brother, so I can't dig into it and tell you what's what's actually in it. But I have read it honestly. Mm -hmm. But I I, I like the way it expanded on Grendel's history. Every so often, it would pop in and tell us, you know, the Grax married this person and killed them off. I thought I quite. I thought the way he sort of, you know. Fed in little bits of that, like when Strella was young, for example, was quite nicely done. Yeah, that was a really interesting sequence, I thought, wasn't it? Where where he just comes up to torment her every so often. Mm, yeah. But that's uh, <laughs> what did make me smile, was the opening prologue is about this rhino bear, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Which oh. is almost as if David Fisher had quickly Googled Androids of Tara and found the only thing we ever complain about is that monster. And thought, right, I'm not having that. Right, he's going to be a rhino. No, a bear. No, even better, it's going to be a rhino bear. That'll sort it out. And he's just a whole pool of talking about this rhino bear, which I thought was fantastic. But then I did expect it to come back again. But then, other than obviously it popping up briefly to Terrify Romana, it was never heard of again, like the Taran Woodbeast. Yes. I was disappointed the Taran Woodbeast never turned up. I was. I was waiting for him. <laughs> oh, no, he's unfairly maligned, poor yeah. thing. Doesn't he look that bad, does he, for a one-second glimpse on the TV? Oh, I think for, for a monster that is only going to be on screen sort of very briefly, I think it's absolutely fine. and It's not yeah. going to set the world on fire, but it always seems to get mocked. Like, it's the only thing in the Androids of Tara that you've got that can you could say... This didn't work. I, to, Everything in else 1978, I don't remember being sorry. I didn't remember bothered by it in 1978. You know, I don't remember remembering it as a really cheap-looking monster until years later. I got to look at it again. So perhaps, perhaps we're unfair to the poor Tyrone Woodbeast or the. It's Rhino the whole um, sorry VHS DVD where you can freeze frame any image, isn't it? And then oh, look at this screenshot of the Tyrone Woodbeast. Whereas in, when it was originally on, you wouldn't be, you know, pausing this telly. And... I think probably Mary Tam is doing a good job on TV, making it scary. Yeah. I'm going to have to try and test it out on my children to see if they're scared of it, because they're eight, was seven, five and two. And I think if, if they're scared of it, then I, I think we should, uh, as you say, it's not uh, rather unfairly maligned. But um, if they point and laugh at it, I think I'll just keep quiet. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think... As we sort of said, the attention to detail for all of the characters throughout the book really makes this something quite special. So, right, I really loved the descriptions of my much-loved character, the Archimandrite, played by the incredible Cyril Shapps on TV. <laughs> and just the um, the description of him being a nervous man just made me smile because yeah, Cyril Shapps is always yes. a nervous man. <laughs> <laughs> he was a master at playing that sort of role, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. I like the way it sort of says that he's um he prayed that he might at least emerge in one piece from what was shaping up to be a very fraught coronation ceremony. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't other descriptions that he was always sweating and and stuff. 
Yeah, it's all of that that sort of goes up to make, so you get a really good idea, even if you haven't seen it, of what this man is like. And he's just a nervous cleric who's hoping to get out with his life. I think what they what he does do in this book, I think it it, it it doesn't change it that much from the original, but he makes all the characters I think I thought reading it much more more. Uh, if, you know, Grendel is more of a scoundrel than the Terence Dix version. He makes more of this business of Madame Lamia and Grendel, and um, dare I say it, the prince is a little bit more of an idiot in this one. You know, I thought he just really, really sort of you know brought them all into focus. I thought, which was, I don't know quite you know quite why reading it through it, was, you know, it seemed quite you know almost just like a not, I'd hesitate to say a kid's book, but, you know, not, you know, the world's finest prose. But somehow he made those characters much more rich and vivid than I think the Terence Dix version did, which is no criticism of, you know, the original. But, you know, I, re- I really enjoyed it, I must admit. I didn't know what to expect, not having heard the audio, and obviously he'd come back to it a long time after originally doing it. I thought it was it was really good. Yeah. I, the character of Farrah, the, the, the young swordsmaster, on television he's very much a sort of... Um, or sort of stiff upper lip British um, war hero, or sort of you know like you get in all those old war films. But uh, on the print, he's slightly arrogant and slightly more uh, devious, and mischievous. And there's a little bit more sort of an edge to him. But um, is it Paul Lavers who's the who's the actor who plays him? Plays him very much like a sort of you know square jawed, um, very polite, stiff upper lip um, mm. British mm. British officer, even though he's you know in in a, a regalia and, and boots and has a sword rather than a rather than a, a, a spitfire to to fight with slightly on a tangent i've been watching the old episodes of may gray on talking pictures and there's a young policeman in it i thought oh, i know that guy i know that guy after about three episodes i realized it's the guy who plays the prince in the androids of tara mm-hmm. i don't actually, ah. i don't wish to diss his acting career i don't think he probably had a glittering career possibly could have just those two parts <laughs> But he, it was in once I twigged who it was, I could see a similar sort of performance style, shall we say. The only other thing I've seen him in was in uh, the Bond film from Russia with Love. He plays um, one of uh, oh, the characters, was it called? Who's um, the sort of, uh, the guy who's in Turkey, um, Karen Bay, oh, who plays his son. Yeah. You see him waiting by the by, by the by the by the level crossing as the as the train goes past. Uh, no, um, I take it back. He had a Bond film. <laughs> Didn't have much to say, but you know, yeah. <laughs> it's funny how actors in Doctor Who seem to turn up in James Bond and have little roles like that. Isn't like our Professor Zaroff pops up in Diamonds Are Forever. Yes, know. and Cyril Shapps is in um, The yes. Spy Who Loved Me as a very nervous scientist. It's <laughs> <laughs> all It's like getting blown up. <laughs> Oh, sorry, sorry, surely Cyril Shapps was in everything, wasn't it? I think so, yes. And of course, um, sort of mentioning May Gray, one of the main directors of May Gray was Michael Hayes, who directed the Androids of Tara. Yeah, so Tara. maybe that's where uh, he yes. sort of, um, sort of uh, knew Neville um, thingy from, whose name I've got, Neville someone. Jason, Neville Jason. <laughs> Neville Jason, there we go. Neville Jason, that's right, yeah, I couldn't think <laughs> what the name was. So, yeah, so maybe it's sort of thinking back, oh, there's an actor who's a bit suave who can pull this off nicely. I think he may have been a friend of Michael Hayes as well. So I mean, a lot of actors, a lot of directors would, would sometimes would cast actors they know and actors that they can they can get on with so that they'll, um, you know, they know that they're not going to get any trouble from any deaverish behaviour. Mm. They seem to used to do that in the old days much more, didn't they? Yeah, definitely. Hence the fact Pennant Roberts cast Paul Darrow in Time Lash because he'd worked with him on Blake 7. Mm-hmm. And that went well. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> then he got true deaverish behaviour from his guest actor. <laughs> but of course, probably the biggest diva in the cast um, was Tom Baker himself. So how mm, do you think yes. his doctor came over in, in the novel? I'll tell you one thing that didn't surprise me. I was surprised, well, not so much surprised. I should have realised it. But the bit in the... Um, um, the author's note at the end when he says, and I think they mentioned it in Doctor Who magazine as well, that line where the Doctor haggles them down to 500 mm. gold coins, which I've always thought, oh, David Fisher's very clever, think of that line. Apparently that was Tom Baker, wasn't it? So I think I think he was obviously enjoying it. And I think the, I think the Doctor comes across well in the book as well. I think either he's, he's uh, captures something of how Tom Baker d- plays the Doctor. He's sort of, you know, he's a very commanding figure in the book throughout. Yeah, I agree. Um, 
and touching on the, the point about the, the money, because isn't it in the book he, he asks a fishing licence to pay for his services? That's right, yes, at the end, doesn't he? Yeah. And, he's, and it ends with, I'm just, well, I'm going to do my fishing now. <laughs> it's a very simple bit, um, but there's one part where he's just arrived at the, um, the hunting lodge with Farah and Zadak, and he says, oh, charming, reminds me of the Australian Alps. I don't suppose either of you yodel. And then he says, no, you concluded. I don't suppose you do. I can just imagine Tom Baker going, no, I don't suppose you do. No, no. Sort of very, that sort of forlorn way that he would, he would sometimes do that, those sort of lines. <laughs> the other thing I noticed in the book is that, well, it's implied in the, on the TV, but it's not, obviously, they didn't really do that with a lot of the stories back then, is that Lamia is his mistress. Yeah, very definitely, mm-hmm. isn't she? Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, but, I mean, it's implied on the telly. When we see the looks, we see the, oh, I, I would do anything for him and all that, but explicitly says in the novel, you know, he took her to his bed or something, you know. It, it, yes. Mm, yes, it's, 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 more, well, it's more explicit in the book, isn't it, or more definite, shall we say. On TV, it's the sort of single line, isn't it, where he says, I showed her a certain courtesy. Mm. Yeah. Yes. And you have to That's imply right. everything from that. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. Peter Jeffrey does a very good job of implying it, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All he needs is the wink at the camera. <laughs> at that point. Yeah, women in general are second-class citizens on Tara, clearly, aren't they? Um, I was going to say, there's a book in the in the book, isn't there, in the new version of the book, where I think I'm right in saying now because obviously I can't refer to it, where the prince starts talking about how peasants don't, you know, don't understand things like love, and Romana tears him off a strip. And then yeah. next time, Grendel says the same thing. The prince tears him off a strip, which I thought that was very cleverly done. Mm-hmm. It isn't, it's not highlighted that the prince has picked this up from Romana, but it sort of highlights the difference between him and Grendel, I think. Grendel is set in his ways, and that's that. The prince, you know, is perhaps adaptable, shall we say. I thought that was interesting. I don't, I don't think that's in the TV version, is it? No, no. It's towards the end of um, chapter two, where um, Romana's with the prince and, and says that uh, Lamy is in love with Grendel. And he said, and the prince is sort of dismissing. Oh no, she's he's not in she's not in love with him. She's only a peasant. She can't have any understanding mm. of true feelings. Yeah. And then it's sort of after it, at, at the end of it, Romana sighed. I shall never understand Tara. She thought. In fact, Romana's quite um, quite a, a more the, the parts a bit more beefed up in in the in the book as as opposed to the the TV series. I know that mm. you know it's it's been uh, you know Mary Tam gets gets to play three parts she gets to play Romana Princess Strella and then the android Romana but she's quite a, a passive character she seems to get a lot, spend a lot of her time you know being locked up and and, and captured um, mm. yeah which is surprising because she plays three parts mm. so you yeah. think you know two of which are locked up yeah <laughs> you must have a great agent I assume <laughs> and one of which doesn't say anything at all it just goes to blast the doctor doesn't it yes. so, um, but yeah I, I think you're right I think she get there are some really good bits for Romana that are added in the book where she gets to stand up a bit more to Count Grendel um, and isn't taking any of his nonsense bosh she says to him at one point <laughs> he's much more slimy in the book isn't he I mean Peter Jeffrey had so much personality you know it was like you love to hate him on the TV, you know, you, you, you still really liked him, that's why we enjoyed his performance, but in the book he's much more, you know, there's none of, he's more dangerous, I'd say in the book. Yeah, there's not so much of his charm, because I think Peter no. Jeffrey is sort of naturally charming and imbues Count Grin, so you sort of like him, but you know that he's a bad, bad man. Yeah. But in the book he's definitely out and out, um, yeah, you're not going to mess with him. <laughs> And in fact, also going back to the, to the rhino bear, that's obviously, you know, when, when Grendel turns up to rescue Romana, he thinks, I'm just going to say the magic word, and this rhino bear is going to stop on its tracks. Whereas on the TV version, you know, he suddenly appears and saves her. You know, so for a minute or two, we might actually think, oh, he's a good guy. Whereas mm. in the book, there's yeah. no doubt that he's, you know, already slimy before he's even opened his mouth. Which again, that was a very, you know, very clever way of doing that. There's one question I, I wanted to ask. is In the Terence original version of the book, does he put the infamous line in? Next time I shall not be so lenient. Because I noticed that wasn't in the new version and I was, oh, I was waiting for that moment. It just said, you know, he dived off the 
the wall and went in this in the, in the moat. I wonder if Uncle Terence had put it in. Ah, uh, here we are, um, page 124. Um, the doctor says, that's Sardik and his men, you may as well just surrender. To which Grendel replies, surrender to that blockhead? I'm a Grach, Doctor, we never surrender. We prefer to live to fight another day. And then he says, nothing nothing like a midnight swim. I'll finish giving you that yeah. fencing lesson, Doctor, one day. And then he dives off. So, yeah, not quite not quite on the, as it is I on the screen. I wonder if that was worked out in the hair yeah sort of with with all these these um lines that we all sort of remember very much from the story whether they're all ad-libs by the actors um because neither of the books sort of quote quote um as we said the money scene um with the doctor um bartering down or Mm -hmm. um the next time i shall not be so lenient which is a fantastic line so you'd think David Fisher would would want to include that, but maybe it wasn't actually in the script. I like how in the book it's implied that he isn't it. He he manages to get out the moat, and then he's going to fight another day. He's going to get a army of thugs in another village or something, and then come back and reclaim what is his. Which mm-hmm. I just thought was typical Count Prendel behaviour. It's almost as if <laughs> David Fisher is angling for a sequel, maybe. Oh, oh. oh sorry, angling fishing, no, sorry. That wasn't the, that wasn't it's just the brilliant line where he, he's thinking, nothing was as satisfying as a good massacre of your enemies. And that's how he bows out, which, yeah, which does seem, yes. seem about right, doesn't it? So. One thing that isn't in the, in the Fisher version, and I'm, I, well, I, I'm pretty sure it isn't, is, is the famous line, which is in, it must be in the script because it's in Terence Dix's version, which is, it's the famous line, a hamster with a blunt oh. penknife could do it quicker. Yes, I noticed that very and I much. It's, and I thought, no, that's my favourite famous line. But, uh, yes, it, sadly, it, it isn't in Sorry, there. Sorry, Joe, you'll have to rename your podcast now because <laughs> David Fisher has written your line out of the story. I wonder yes. if he had trademarked it and that's why he couldn't use it or something. <laughs> Joe, what royalties? So I'll have to find an alternative title for you, for, for Joe. Yeah, there's got to be one somewhere in the book. Nothing was as satisfying as a good massacre of you. Yeah, no, no, I think what's quite clear from this, well, from the stories, not just the book, and Stones of Blood as well. I think David Fisher clearly enjoys writing for K9, whereas you kind of get the feeling some of the other writers find him a nuisance or don't know what to do with him. Whereas David Fisher just writes him as mm. one of the team, doesn't he? You know, the fact that he is a tin dog. Oh, is, yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, Very much just, a character you know, in his own right, As yes. a character in his own right, which I think is lovely. And okay, allows the Doctor to have a bit of, you know, a bit of badinage with him, a bit of banter with him. But, uh, yeah, I think he just he handles him well. Isn't it when he's on the when he's abandoned on the boat? There's a line that says something like, you know, all the doctors put here was a a, a a murmur coming from his robotic friend or something. Yeah, you can imagine what he's murmuring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, you're right, Andrew. I mean, I think David Fisher is probably one of the best writers for K9. Um, completely in this and Stones of Blood. He's he's written as the third lead he's the third member of the team and he's as much a character and i think he makes canine just that little bit more prissy and smart and smug which um then leads to a really even um better performance from john lisa because he's really got some something to do Mm. yes i mean the that chess scene at the start is is expanded in the book isn't it but it's, it's, it's entertaining on the TV. They expand it quite a lot, I think, in, in the book from memory. The Doctor starts talking about Capablanca and so on. He does mention Capablanca in the TV, TV version and in, in Terence Dix's book. One thing he doesn't mention, which I think would have fallen foul of, of um, Graham Williams in the original script and possibly, was it, would John Nathan Turner have been producer would have done sort of edited the books as well or sort of put it got his famous blue pen it says here um uh you see canine kappa had only two weaknesses cigars and beautiful women the cigars didn't interfere with his game but the but the women did just imagine graham (laughs) williams no no can't have that no no references to this is doctor who he spent more time being distracted by a baroness than preparing for his match so you know it's it's it, it's chastely put, but it's the the impl- you know it's it's implying there. That's uh, that's what it's uh, that's what he's up to. That's why he, that's what that's what his downfall was. 
Yeah, and of course, the Doctor's downfall is playing against two far more brilliant leads <laughs> who are always going to defeat him. And I, I really like sort of mentioning that that section of the book. There's a really nice recap of the key to time, but yeah. actually fairly similar to what um, Terence Dix does in the original book. And I really like sort of the recap of where they are and what they're doing, and then. Um, sort of after all these paragraphs of sort of portentous writing about um, how the celestial balance is, is all out, um, it cuts to then the Doctor saying, ah, oh, yes, the key to time, that little trinket. <laughs> <laughs> Which sort of nicely undercuts it all. <laughs> and again, in the, in the same way that Romana is sort of um, doing that with him as well. So she's trying to make him sort of get out and... Um, be more engaged with the with the mission than than he is at this point. Mm. Was it was it Terence Dix who said that the ideal Doctor Who story is they all come out of the TARDIS and they say, "Oh, what's over here?" and they instantly separate. Well, I love that David Fisher does it by Romana saying, "Oh, we got a job to do," and the Doctor saying, "Ah, no, I'm going to have the afternoon off, and I'm off and I'm going this way." <laughs> so nobody attacks them. There's no explosion. The Doctor just stops off one way, and Romana stops off the other. I think it's brilliant. And what's even more brilliant is that she has the segment within the first five minutes of the story. <laughs> yes, yes that's right. It. You kind of think she's she left it to her. straight away. And then yeah, they she just get caught up in episodes. all the politics. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's a nice, brilliant way of doing this, where you've had sort of the three stories before this, where you don't see the segment until the very end, or don't find out what it is until much later in the story. Here... It's just there, and then mm. it's done, and then it's the getting the segment back at the end that is the difficult thing. Mm. It's, yeah, it's quite a clever way of at least across the season, you know, making it giving it a bit of variety, isn't it? Yeah, so you can get caught up in a nice fun adventure, and then pick up the key to time when you've remembered in the last episode that it's still somewhere, and you've got to go and get it. <laughs> But in the book version here, it's actually Romana who retrieves it. But in the TV version, the Doctor sort of plays her a little merry dance and sort of has it hidden in his coat. And she's she's got the tracer and she's going, ah, it's over here. No, 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 it's over here. Yeah. So that's good. And, and where it's a bit of fun, it does sort of demean Romana's character a little bit, where here she's given a little bit more gravitas and a bit more um, bit more intelligence to, to get to, to find it herself because she knows where it is. Um, I was listening the other day to um, Jason Miller's podcast, uh, which he was doing on Horror Fang Rock by uh, with um, Steve Alexander. And he mentioned about how he wasn't a fan of David Fisher's writing because he felt that he was trying to be too much like Douglas Adams. And I wondered, what did anyone, did anyone else agree with that? Because I, I do want there is there is a yeah, you could you could say there is a, a slight Douglas Adams feel to his to, to David Fisher's writing. Well, I, I can't speak because I would say I mean, there is a sort of a humorous slant to it, but I would say he's probably more, I'm not going to say disciplined, because that sounds like it's an insult to Douglas Adams, isn't it? But I would say he's probably more focused. He's coming in, he knows what he's going to write, he's going to give you four scripts, boom, there you go. He's not going to get 10 minutes in and think, oh, I know, I'm going to put a bit in with an intelligent pillow now. That's not on the storyline, but I'm just going to carry on with that. I think I, I think he's got that, perhaps that sensibility but he knows exactly what he's doing. I think he's been he's been around the block long enough. I think, but this time David Fisher. But there's, I mean, there's certain elements of it. I agree. There's that sort of playfulness. Although whether by the time it reaches the TV, that's because they've all been filtered through Tom Baker's ad living machine. I don't know. <laughs> or Anthony Reid, obviously. Um, Anthony Reid was very, you know, he he knew he was very, you know, what much I say. <laughs> um, a good script editor, uh, as we know. So mm. it had this, it, the, the stories of the Keat type season have a good structure to them, I think. I think that's down to him a, a lot. No, I think you're right. I think, actually, I always think that um, David Fisher really is sort of the unsung hero of this era of Doctor yeah. Who. Mm. Uh, he's mm. He comes in, He's he's had enough experience to be a really committed and strong sort of plot writer... Um, and he just gets this era of Doctor Who sort of straight away. He comes in in the Stones of Blood, and he knows mm. exactly what he's doing. And here, mm. he's um, for Andrew Tatara, he's turned to sort of fairly last minute when one of the scripts falls through 
to say, oh, could you do us another one? Um, oh, how about um, The Prisoner of Zender? And off he goes, and he, he just um, pulls it out of the bag. And I think, again, um, in season 17, he's really down as the head writer for the show. He's down to do two strip scripts that year. One, obviously, falls through and gets the Douglas Adams and Graham Williams treatment. Um, but he's they're, they're thinking, we've got a star writer here who can just deliver the goods mm. without us having to do too much to it. And in some ways, it's a bit of a shame that he wasn't allowed to stay on into the JNT era because they could do with someone who could have just <laughs> come in, written a script that didn't need much work, let Eric Saywood then get on with bringing his new mm-hmm. writers in. But sometimes you need those old hands who you know you can turn to. Oh, yes. Who's going yeah, to, okay. to turn something out. And I don't mean that sort of necessarily as a bad thing, but you know you're going to get something quality out of them without sort of having to do too much to it. Totally. Mm-hmm. It's interesting then. Why why didn't they suggest David Fisher to replace Anthony Reid then? I wonder. Well, maybe they did, and David Fisher said no. I, I think wasn't it that Anthony Reid suggested Douglas Adams? I think it's a, this is a guy mm-hmm. who's a imaginative. Um, don't know if he was the best choice to have as a script editor, because <laughs> <laughs> I think he would have met himself. You know, if he was uh, obviously still with us, but um, yeah. Nuts and bolts like Terence Sticks and others, I don't think it was his 40. <laughs> Ideas was Douglas Adams' 40. Yeah, and maybe he needed a strong script editor to yeah. get his scripts into order, which is why I think City of Death works, because he's got Graham Williams at his side saying, no, come on, let's do this, let's mm-hmm. do this. this. We've got a plot, mm-hmm. this is what we're going to do, and you could just be witty around this plot. Yeah, I mean, it would have been a great choice, though, David Fisher, but I don't know... Like Daniel was saying, whether he was offered it or whether he maybe didn't want the job. <laughs> you know, it, it seems to be a very stressful job being the script editor of Doctor Who, doesn't it? Mm, it certainly sounds like it, doesn't it, from what we hear. But I, I agree with you, Sir. I think David Fisher is is their sort of their star writer. He comes, uh, you rightly say, he comes in and just gets Doctor Who, doesn't he? You know, it's as if someone's told him, well, "This is it can do all these things if you like." And he thinks, oh, I'll, I'll write this one story that can do all these things. And then Androids of Tara is completely different. You know, even when I was seven, I remember I enjoyed watching the credits. But it was years before I realised that those two stories were written by the same person because they're so different. Yeah, and then to follow it up with Creature from the Pit. Yeah, the next well, I like year. Creature from the Pit. I do as yeah, well. Let's not too. slag off the creature from the pit, say. No, well, no, certainly not, Dave. We, we've <laughs> heard you talk at length about creature from the pit. <laughs> oh, yeah. Don't worry, you're among friends <laughs> yeah. here. Yes. And the leisure home yes. as well, even after it's been tinkered with by, by Christopher H. Bidmead. Again, it's a very strong story and some lovely one-liners for Tom. Um, you know, arrest the scarf. That might have been in the original script. I don't know whether it was an addition by Tom, but um, it, yeah, I, he's a very strong writer and a very, very humorous writer as well. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a pity. I mean, I know but, obviously you're uh, you're a huge fan of the Leisure Hive side, but I, I just wish sometimes with the Leisure Hive that humor it's missing a bit, and that's totally because of the tone of season eighteen and Christopher H. Bidmead and. Mm-hmm. It would have been interesting to see an alternative versus the Leisure Hive if he had been allowed to keep more of the humour in, which I suspect is what was taken out. Yeah, I think you can read that in the book. Okay. um, Which is what I think um, was written by David Fisher. So I think he's gone back to his original conception of the story and there is a bit more of all of that stuff in there from what I remember. It's been a little while since I've read it. But I, I just absolutely adore the leisure hive as anyone who knows me knows um but um again but he does the thing that he does in the android tower again he has a very touching relationship between mina and hardin yes that um is alluded to and is subtle and isn't sort mm. of in your face but there's some really lovely scenes sort of between them where there's a sort of real you can sense there's real affection and the two actors um, play that really nicely, Nigel Lambert and Adrian Corey. I remember the end where he's where she's dying and he's carrying her to, 
to get to the generator and he's telling everyone to get out of the way, get mm. out of the way. It was a real sort of desperately trying to save the woman he loves. It's uh, like you say, it, it's, it's not, it's not over overdone. It's, it's very nicely underplayed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and Nigel Lambert is very good with, with, with Adrian Corey. There's a definite sort of um, uh, chemistry between the two actors, which isn't overdone and not overwrought. You don't have, um, you know, Murray Gold playing, you know, tugging at your heartstrings over it. You've got Peter Howell doing his best um, synthesizers. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a really good story. The other thing I would say, I was thinking about David Fisher's scripts, Perhaps not the well, perhaps not the Stones of Blood, but the other three. Then of all, he's always very strong on, for want of a better description, structure. So he's got a cliffhanger, which will suddenly bring lots of things together suddenly, and give you a great cliffhanger. So it's part three in Creature from the Pit and part three in the Leisure Hive, but also in Androids of Tara, part two. Even though when I was seven, I kind of knew that they weren't going to have the Doctor club his assistant's brains out on Saturday tea time, and yet because he structured it so well, you don't really exactly know that the doctor's got it right you don't know whether he's attacked the princess or romana or an android and so although you don't you know really in the real world that isn't going to happen it's a great cliffhanger i remember watching that as a kid and then creature in the pit part three you know a year later and thinking that's really clever he's what he's done is he's written that so it reaches that cliffhanger naturally but it's a really strong cliffhanger rather than just suddenly someone pulls out a gun and threatens the doctor for five minutes i thought that was, it's really yeah. impressive i'm watching it again recently I was really struck when suddenly Tom comes out and whacks, you know, or appears to whack you know, the the android over the head. Very clever stuff. He he seems to understand the character of uh, certainly of the fourth Doctor. So there's a slightly reckless edge to him. So like you say at the end of episode two of of Tara, he's you know you see him whacking um, Princess Strella over the head with the with the scepter, and very similar that you've got David Fisher in for writing for Creature in the Pit. The end. Of the first episode is the doctor jumping into the pit and you kind of think what on earth is he doing and there's sort of like this this dangerous reckless edge to the doctor and certainly to tom baker's doctor that that david fisher seems to understand mm. and even going into that you could argue also going into the the generator at the end at the at the end of part one of the leisure hive um and you see him you know getting torn oh, apart yes. And then he does it again at the end of episode two, and you know he comes back and comes out as an old man. And sort of, I don't know whether it's something that he sort of saw in Tom's performance or wanted to sort of explore, but there's a there's a definite reckless edge to sort of very, you know, whatever 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 I've got to do, I will do it. And I love the bit in, at the beginning, at the end of Creature in the Pit Part 1, where he looks at Romana, Romana looks at him, and it's like, you just don't know what he's thinking. And that's the thing about Tom's Doctor. There are times when you really don't know what he's thinking, and I think David Fisher's writing seems to pick up on that really, really rather yeah, well. Yeah, Tom's Doctor isn't always yeah. predictable, is he? Um, he's, no. Yeah, I think it was Terence Dick said once, wasn't it, about the five Doctors he was going to write, the one who he was, that Tom would be the one to go back to Murray mm. saying he was the one that was going to go back to the capital because he felt that Tom, the mm. viewers could believe, might be tempted by the the offer of yeah. immortality and to help him out. But I might have got that completely wrong. But it's yeah, Tom's no, no, no. You're absolutely right. He he definitely said that. And again, I'm sort of talking about this. The sort of original conception of the end of part one of stones of blood was supposed to be the dots you see the doctor push romana off the cliff yeah. which again mm -hmm. sort of plays into this well why is the doctor doing that what what's this all about and tom refused to do it and so they had to sort of fudge it and you just hear the voice sort of leading her astray so but then a few weeks later he's quite happy to smack mary tam <laughs> over the head with a great big scepter so <laughs> So obviously his um, his standards change story to story. <laughs> I don't think it was anything personal, but they they, they did get on quite well. Yeah, didn't I they? Think, yeah, they had a great working relationship. Very much. Um, yeah, he didn't take any nonsense. She didn't take any yeah, nonsense from him. Um, and um, and I think he was slightly scared of her. <laughs> well, she was she was yes. slightly <laughs> famous before Doctor Who, wasn't she? I think. The feeling wasn't she a little bit of a star casting? I can't think what for now, but she wasn't a sort of an, an, an unknown 
actress, I don't think. Yeah, was she in the... She was in a film, yeah. The Odessaphile. Odessaphile. Odessaphile, that's it. Yes, with um, John Voight. And uh, Derek Jacobi, I think, is in it as well. Yes, and she, yeah, so she'd done quite a few movies and she was one of the few actresses after Doctor Who to, to have quite a good career. She was certainly one of those actresses who would sort of turn up in... I know she did a quite quite a long stint in Brookside, and then she sort of would pop up in things like uh, Jonathan Creek, and um, she turned out to be a, a, a villain in Poirot, oh. which was really <laughs> good. So, mm-hmm. um, oh, I'm slowly working my way oh, through. Oh, sorry, Poirot, I'm ruining so. that one for you now. <laughs> she may she may not be a villain in Poirot. No. <laughs> okay. She was also wasn't she also in the first episode of Crime Traveller. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. BBC yeah. to reinvent Doctor Who. Oh yes, yes, yeah. So again, she she just kept on working, sort of the whole time, sort of right up to her death. Mm. She'd just done a few episodes of EastEnders, hadn't she? I think not long before being married off to, to Image of the Fendals, Derek Martin, or in a relationship with him. So yeah, because she'd just done the first series on Big Finish, didn't she? They'd done one series, and then unfortunately she passed right. away. Yeah. There's some crackers in that season if you haven't heard them. The antimatter is oh, the just antimatter one of the most hell. amazing Doctor Who stories ever. <laughs> I love that story. What, what's the other one? Is it Phantom of the Deep? Yes. With mm-hmm. Alice Krieger? Yeah. The queen. Uh, yeah. I, we, well, the antimatter brings two things together that I love, and that's Doctor Who and P.G. Yes. Woodhouse. Yes. <laughs> and I I do wonder, actually, with David Fisher, if, if he was a Woodhouse fan, because there's sort of slight, that sort of level of humour... It's not laugh-out-loud humour that you get in Woodhouse. And also, as I mentioned about the aunt earlier on, the, the Aunt Lucretia, I think there's an interview somewhere with David Fisher on one of the DVDs where he said about, you know, he was besieged by t- several aunts, and whenever he killed off a character, it was always one of his aunts that was killing <laughs> off or something. So, um, and, and P.G. Woodhouse, lots of... Lots of well, Bertie So many aunts, and very ferocious aunts, played by... Um, Oh, the woman who plays Tabby. One of them is played by the, the woman who plays Tabby in Paradise Towers, and also on the the, um, the Blanding stories is, you know, the the, the ninth Earl of Emsworth has twelve, ten or twelve sisters. They're all aunts to, and yeah. So I wonder if there's a slight sort of not similarity to to um, to, to P. G. Woodhouse's writing with this this version of Androids of Tara, but I wonder if it's sort of if he was a bit of a fan and one of those sort of so a little bit of a, an influence or inspiration. Yeah, you can certainly see that. Yeah, um, the other David Fisher writes very good female characters. I mean, it, mm-hmm. like you were saying about the ants, and then the amount. I mean, actresses must have got the scripts for his stories and loved it because I mean, you've got such strong meaty female characters in his stories. You've got obviously um, Adrasta and Carella and the creatures from the pit. You've got Vivian Fee, mm-hmm. The Stones of Blood. Um, Andrew Zatara, well, I, I mean, Lamia, I, I guess, isn't a strong character, but but then you've got, obviously, Mina and The Ledger Hive. Yeah, it's, it, they, they must have... And, of course, uh, Professor Rumford. Oh, profe- of course, yes, oh, Professor yes. Rumford. Yes. I forget mm-hmm. Professor Rumford. I mean, certainly for the time, he very much... Or you know, writing a lot of female characters very unusually, as you say, perhaps Amber yeah. Jatara isn't the best example, but yeah, you know, it sticks out a mile that you know. Whereas a lot of the other stories are you know, wall to wall men, if you pardon the expression. Suddenly we've got you know, female characters who are supporting the Doctor or the villains or whatever. Yeah, it's 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 really noticeable, isn't it? In some ways, it probably doesn't help that one of the female characters or two of the female characters in Androids of Tara are played by the same actress. So yeah. you've only you've only got two female characters, female two actresses in the cast. Mm. I, I know Lamia isn't a, a very a big role, but it's certainly I think one of the mo- more interesting, mm. particularly with the sort of the showing the relationship of with Count Grendel yes. and you know we went, we, we mentioned earlier on about how he showed her a certain courtesy once, and it's you don't get that in in classic Who sort of um, characters or villains that are motivated not not. I, mean, I imagine there's a certain degree of 
you know, a survival instinct in, in what she does, but also that her motivation is because she is in love with the villain. Um, and, and like a lot of, you know, um, characters that are in love with the villain or, or are in cahoots with the villain, they, they will come to a sticky end. She's the only character that dies in the story, isn't she? None of the other sort of lead characters are killed oh, off. You're quite right. I've never noticed yeah, that. Yeah, I think well, the only certainly the only named character, aren't they? Maybe some extras who get bumped mm. off. But yes, you're right. Yeah, and in the book, David Fisher mentions about the he he's he's there's a big play for who who was the one who shot her, and then you know Fisher says that all all the, uh, the the man who accidentally shot her puts his hand up, and everyone else sort of takes a step back, <laughs> like because they know what it's going to be like and what's going to happen. And Grendel says he's going to go to you know you know he says oh well it, everything happened so quick and. Grendel says, well, I'm going to make sure that your death is extremely slow and painful then, mm. um, which again sort of shows, you know, it's a bit more, he's a bit more of a villain in, in, the, in, the, in the novel, whereas, you know, you don't, you just get Grendel, sort of, you know, Peter Jeffrey sort of banging his head in frustration and going, <laughs> ah, as the doctor, you know, as Romana runs out. I would be invited to ascribe on. a sort of slightly romantic side to Mr. Count Grendel's nature and think he suddenly feels really sad that Glamia is dead and wants to get his revenge. Or is he just quite nasty? You know, is there a, is there a hint that perhaps once she's suddenly being murdered in front of him, he feels a little bit of something for her? Perhaps. I did wonder that myself. Yeah. So, and it's just such a fascinating relationship. I love the way um, there's the line, isn't there, earlier on where um, Count Grendel just turns to her and says, "Oh, um, whatever would I do without you?" And she just turns around and says, "Find another peasant who can make androids." And it's just that back at each other, even though she's absolutely um, in love with him. But Mm. she she is one of the few people who will give as good as she gets back at him, Mm, which is also interesting. And she's got that. Maybe she's got that stronger relationship with him that she can get away with saying the things that no one, none of his Mm. other lackeys would get away with. I think you're right, Andrew, because it says here on page 102, the Count was astonished at the strength of his own feelings at the accident. When all was said and done, Lamia was just a peasant, a clever one, admittedly, a loyal one, even beautiful in a certain light, but a peasant nonetheless. And Taran aristocrats didn't grieve over the fate of peasants. And yet here he was doing just that. The truth was, he concluded, he'd grown accustomed to her presence. She'd become a part of his life. He could do without her, of course. But things wouldn't be the same. Grendel sighed as he contemplated a Lamia-less mm. existence. Mm. So yeah, I think you're right. You are just sort of. There is a sort of. It's like maybe he feels like somebody's sort of you know locked off, you know, killed off his favourite dog or, you know, broken his favourite chair. Having that somebody who's part, somebody who's been part of his life, even a peasant, he's still going to, in a way, going to miss mm. her. It gives the character a little bit of a bit more of a less panto villain and more sort of you know a bit more believable. Mm. I'm not saying that Peter Jeffrey is a panto villain in, in in Androids of Tara, but there's you know you don't you don't get the level of of how he's going to miss Lamia on the screen than you yeah. do in, in in the page on the page. And you certainly don't get it in the Terence Dix novel, where it really is. <laughs> um, he looked down at her body for a moment and then drew a deep breath and then shouted at the doctor. So this really is just, a very she's dead approach, and that's it. Yep. Move on. Right, move on. <laughs> and that's the start of a chapter. She doesn't even get a cliffhanger there. So. <laughs> One thing that I did pick up on as I read the story this time, which is probably not a revelation to anybody, but there aren't actually many androids in the androids of Tower, are there? There's just the prince and Strella, as far as I can tell. And one of Romana yes. as well, isn't there? Oh, that's true, yes. Who is sent to the pavilion of the far winds to go and, and destroy him when she hears the Doctor's voice. I, mean, I suppose the... Yeah, uh, that's, the, that's it. The backstory of the androids replacing the peasants, I suppose the androids are all out in the fields, are we supposed to assume? Or Yeah, aren't they all the animals? The, the, like the, the meat android oh, animals? Oh, the great big rhino bears. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Oh, yes, that's true. Yes, that's, that's right. Mm-hmm. There's a, an android rhino bear. How can I forget that? 
I, w- I withdraw my criticism of Mr. Fisher. There's plenty of androids in the androids of Tara. I, I'm sure he knew what he was doing. I'm still going to one of those... the, the, the beast. Um... But it's, um, I'm, I think going back to the original conception, I think um, David Fisher imagined there being sort of android horses and things like that. So, which of course they couldn't couldn't oh, make happen yeah. because they can't even make that happen now, nearly sort of <laughs> forty odd years on. So um, yeah, I, I, that sort of went went by the by. But that does lead to the great joke of Romana's being on the on the horse, saying, "How do you start this thing?" Which feels <laughs> yes. like it's just a direct translation of where they were. But actually, is funnier when it's a horse. Oh, oh yes, I see. Yes, I see what you mean. Some wily accountant obviously went through and said, we can't afford that. We're not having that. Yeah, I think Graham Williams probably having conniptions at thinking of mechanical horses. We can't do it. We, there's no way. <laughs> <laughs> Were they supposed to fly as well? Oh, I think. wow. Okay. Oh, my Lord. Uh, yes, I think. <laughs> flying mechanical horses. And, and Graham Williams said, no, you can have one horse and, and that's it. <laughs> was was JNT in, tar- in charge of the production budget by this time? Because I know he famously yes. worked out the budgets for Paris, didn't he? So he perhaps was, he already yes. had a blue pencil ready to cross out people's extravagant flights of fancy. <laughs> Flying horse becomes horse. <laughs> horse. <laughs> Has anyone, any of you read the original Android um, Prisoner of Zender? The book it was no. based on. I, 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 I haven't myself. I was just anyone else. I no. hadn't. I, did, I have a feeling I did start to read it once, only because I knew it was about the like the Androids of Tara. I think I read about a chapter and then didn't bother finishing it. That was years ago. But yes, because it would be interesting to know. We we all think we know. Oh yeah, this is like Doctor Who does the Prisoner of Zender. But I have no idea whether it's like that or not. You know, it could be completely different for all I know. But I think I know that it isn't. From memory, I mean, yeah, the plot is about um, a person, a man who looks like the king, and they want to impersonate him because there's a Count Grendel-like character who wants to try and overthrow the, the throne mm-hmm. and take over. So there's that sort of plot element to the Prisoner of Zender, which is similar to the plot element of Androids of Tara, and also it's set in a similar sort of. I, I, the word Ruritania springs to mind. I don't know if that's a sort of is that the that might be the name of the the kingdom in in the Prisoner of Zender. Oh, that might be the name of the country. I think perhaps yes. Hence why it became Tara. I think because it's sort of very similar. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and so that's how the idea of it being sort of this um, early sort of 18th century or late 17th century sort of kingdom where people, you know, men are men and women are, are, are kept silent. That reminds me of the bit that we talk about, um, yeah, faith, or the religion on Tara. Um, the, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's sort of like that sort of heroic, um, you know, sort of Errol Flynn-type swashbuckling film that you got in the 1930s and 40s. Ah, oh, right. Yeah, I think there's um, a scene on one of the DVD extras where they show a clip from um, the BBC classic serial of yeah. The Prisoner of Zender and then show the same scene from The Androids of Tara to show oh. they're very sort of, there are sort of similar plot points where they're having someone impersonate the king and hoping to get away with yeah. it and get him to his coronation. I mean, I'm, I'm presuming there's even less androids in The Prisoner of Zender than there are in The Androids of Tara. <laughs> But I've not read it. So. <laughs> probably more horses, though. Very probably. <laughs> <laughs> but I, mean, I always imagine it's sort of very much that swashbuckling, lots of sword fights, lots of soldiers, that kind of story. So, But that might be my ignorance showing there. And apologies to anyone who has read The uh, Prisoner of Zender. Please write in and tell us whether we're right or wrong. <laughs> it's actually one of those books that no one has ever read, probably. If some people have seen the film. Most people have seen the Androids of Tara and think they've read *The Prisoner of Zender*. I noticed in this book, uh, the book version, that he's shortened the sword fight at the end quite a lot, hasn't he? I don't know if we've already touched on yeah. that. Where in the original one, it seems to go on for quite, well, quite a long time, and I think the Terence Dix version is quite faithful to the TV version. Whereas in this one, it, it's over in a flash. But I think it's probably a good decision. It's not easy to make a, a sword fight tremendously exciting on the page. I don't think. Yeah. No. 
No, and again, a lot of it is coming from the performances of Tom Baker sort of doing the comic side at the start and then turning out to be actually fairly proficient afterwards. So mm. sort of relies on that. And then you've got the wonderful location filming as well so that they move out of the studio and then they're um, fighting at night on the ramparts, which is exactly sort mm. of what you want. Oh, yes, yeah, on the like. TV, it works really well. It's very exciting. Yeah, but it, as you say, it's just more difficult to capture that in, in prose form, really. It, looking at the original version, the Terence Dix version, it goes on for a, quite a few pages. Um, <laughs> there's a little bit of it sort of interspersed between. Um, oh, it just says about the, the end of it's at the end of chapter eleven and beginning of chapter twelve. It, yeah, it goes on all the way through, and it says at one point it says the fight raged on, which um, keeps going on and on, and then. Finally, at the end, it's sort of yeah. There's a good sort of six, five, six or seven pages of, of fighting, but um, as you say, Terence would like to be quite more faithful to the original the original script. So it doesn't seem to have been a lot, probably a, a little bit of tomfoolery, dare, dare I say it, where he, from memory, he stands with his back to to Peter, to, to Cam Grendel at one point, putting his sword up, and then. Count Gretel sort of hits him on the back with the with the with the electric sword, but that's just Tom being wanting to sort of, you know, his usual. Oh, oh, Michael, I think we should do this. What do you think about it? Well, you can just you can just ignore me if you want to, you know, that sort of thing. It's interesting though that in in both Stones of Blood and in this, he's he's very Tom's very playful, and I think somebody said that if you, if you give him a good cast of actors and a, and a good script, you get Tom. You know, at the height, of, you know, putting up in, you know, putting his game yeah. game up a bit, mm. and so you've got. I mean, I think somebody said that Beatrix Lehman sort of, you know, would keep him on his toes, and he would, you know, he would try and do something, and she would sort of look at him as if to go, "Do you really? Are you really going to do that?" And I imagine working with an actual actor like Peter Peter um, Jeffrey, and also Simon Lack, who plays Zardek, was quite a famous actor as well in his time. Um, he would obviously, you know, he would be sort of a little bit not in awe of these actors, but sort of quite, quite impressed that they wanted to be in Doctor Who and wouldn't would, wouldn't mess around as much as he he would have done, say, for example, in you know a story like Pirate Planet or something. I don't know whether the cast isn't quite so well known. Mm. Yeah, I, mm, I have a feeling yeah. he also really respected Michael Hayes as a director as well, so he behaved himself for him. So, um, hence why he comes back twice, sort of in quick succession, I think, because he can keep Tom under control. <laughs> yeah. There was a wonderful interview that Michael Hayes did with Doctor Who magazine where he said there was only one time during his work on Doctor Who that he, he wanted to, to, to punch Tom Baker, and that was on the, on the Armageddon Factor. And he was up in the control room, and Tom was being Tom, and he sort of walked from the control room... All the way down the gan- all the way down the steps, and he realised that by the time he got to the bottom of the steps, that he'd calmed down enough to realise that probably punching your leading actor is not the best thing to do. <laughs> and and it was sort of by that time he'd calmed down and was able to sort of sort him out. But yeah, as you say, Michael Hayes, he works with them on City of Death, and I think that he does give his actors a bit of leeway into changing the script. And I imagine that's probably in 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 as much as you know he, you know they do allow these sort of things. Um, Tom and Michael Hayes, they sort of, oh, what, what about this and changing changing things and actors like, like sort of, you know, they want to put in their own sort of thing about, oh, well, my character wouldn't say this or that's a bit out of character or do you think this would be more in character? Do you not go to the popular film as well? <laughs> probably. <laughs> that probably <laughs> well. Him and Alan Bromley, for example, weren't drinking buddies at the... But that seems unlikely. No. <laughs> Plus, Michael Hayes would have been, you know, when they did City of Death, he's he and and, and Tom would have been out in the evening as well oh. with Lala and um, Tom Chadburn, who played Duggan as well. Oh. And I think there's a story that that Douglas Adams turned up at one oh. point with Ken Grieve, and they yeah, <laughs> and they, they got they got told to go back with home. Director, yeah, with the director of Destiny of the Daleks, with, with Ken Grieve, didn't they both yes. go to Bender or something? In more innocent times, I suppose. 
that's the joy of the Graham Williams era. <laughs> Sounds like it was one long trip to the pub. <laughs> I think you could say that about a lot of eras of Doctor Who, yes. Although I think, I think by all accounts, J&T liked to tibble, didn't they? Yes. So is there anything we haven't covered that you'd like to cover before we, we sign off? I suppose the only other thing, although I know you shouldn't judge a book by the cover, is the cover of the new Androids of Tara better than the cover of the old Androids of Tara? Because I've got a real problem with the old Androids of Tara. Namely that the Doctor and Romana look like they are Androids. It's Andrew Scaletta must be having an off day because they both look awful. That's that's the one, yes. I mean, even the wooden prints behind them looks more lifelike than they do, particularly Romana. <laughs> Romana's got a bit of a Kim Kardashian look about it, a bit sort of, you know, yes, very, very sort of straight-faced and no, no you know, not being able to, to frown. Yeah, it's as if he thought, you know, I'll finish the detail in later, but then some fool printed it accidentally before he'd finished it off. And she's not in the right costume either. Her... Oh, oh, I hadn't even noticed that. Oh, right, well, case closed. I hadn't even noticed that, side. Yeah, the white cloak, that's just wrong. <laughs> I think someone also once pointed out Tom's got a very long arm as well. Now I look at it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not the greatest pose of them. They say that the the mark of a true work of art is every time you look, you see something different. Well, this cover is like that. Every time I'm looking, I'm seeing something different, but it's not a great work of art. I mean, I love Andrew Scaletta's art, don't get me wrong, but even he has the off. This is very much his early days, so mm. he obviously yeah. got better. To be fair, to be fair, his canine looks quite good. Yeah, um, oh yeah, I mean, to be fair, if Tom would just get out of the way. Yeah. Exactly, and as I said, that was enough to make me buy the book. <laughs> mm. In fact, isn't Mary Tam one of the few companion companions to actually appear on the cover of the book? Because she also appears on the cover of um, the Armageddon yeah, Factor which, as well. Yeah. Which is a far better portrait of a... That's a really good cover, that one. Mm. And I think I'm right in saying that the Androids of Tara is the only book cover originally with K-9 on it. Oh, except for the five oh. doctors, would that be right? Oh, that okay, count? you win. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, well, I feel like to stick up for Andrew Scaletta, having just snagged him off. He does a lovely oh, cover for the go. five doctors, really mm-hmm. very nice. He does, yes. But yeah, the new cover is all right, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. just looking at it now. Um, you've got, obviously, Tom being looking very playful, as we've discussed. Um and Count Drendall looking like a real nasty scoundrel, so it can get some of the two characters well. And, and Mary Tam gets to be on this. They've all adapted, they've sort of gone for the Achilles style, haven't they? I've got the Witchfinders here, because I thought I might have to bluff my way through with a logo, because I didn't have the honours of time. They've all got that sort of Achilles style, haven't they? And I suppose nowadays, with branding and all that jazz, no one's going to say, tell you what, let's do the next batch completely different. So they're all probably going to all look the same. I think after if they do a few more batches, I think we might get a bit fed up with that style. But I think they're now sort of stuck with it, if you know what I mean. The only thing about Romana on this one is it looks like she's just on a diamond. I'm assuming that's obviously the segment they keep time, but it just looks like a diamond to me. I'm guessing so. Yeah, she's yeah. It's a bit of an odd decision since the other two are sort of full face and, and the whole lot. So yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, I think Andrew, you're right. They're, they're, they're starting because we've had these. This is like the fourth or fifth um, uh, batch mm, of books that have been a, released in this, now, in, in this yeah. style. We've had quite a few, and and it is starting to look a bit, bit tired and a bit sort of, um, you know, lacking in originality. Uh, and also, if you look at the original Achilles books, he didn't stick to that style, did Not he? For very you, long. Kate, you That's got. True. Not for very long. It's only the original ones, and then you get, you know, uh, from from memory, you've got Pyramids of Mars, which you've got, which you've got Tom and Liz, Liz with the mm. gun, and the the, mum, the mummy in the middle, and then you've got uh, Carnival of Monsters with with Pertwee looking miserable, <laughs> and the plesiosaur attacking the boat. <laughs> well, it's 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 the, it's that that when he's when he's you know you it's missing Patrick Troughton standing behind him where they're sort of stood back mm. to back with a mm. with a frown. Um, it's a great cover. It's one of my favourites, but, but it's um, not the same style as these. What we need now is no, someone to move in no. and do a Jeff Cummins style for a little while. 
we'll just get Jeff well, Cummings yeah, well, he's still start. here and he's still painting mm-hmm. so yeah that's not a bad yeah, idea yeah. I mean his his covers are dare I say it better than Chris Achilles's <gasps> yes you're right <laughs> sorry <laughs> <laughs> well on that controversial note <laughs> <laughs> on that bombshell yeah <laughs> I think that's um, that's us done with looking at the androids of Tara and the wonderful work of David Fisher. Mm. So I hope we've done yeah. him justice. I hope I so hope too. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yes. So um, thank you very much for listening. Um, Trap One will be back next time when apparently. I'm taking a trip to Merry England in Paul Mars's Doctor Who meets Robin Hood novel coming next um, with Mark, so I'm told, which should be very, very good. And there'll be the other two uh, new Target books, The Stones of Blood and The Fires of Pompeii, will be looked at shortly too, which will be interesting. Lots of books at the moment that we're looking for. Mm. So you can find uh, Trap One on twitter at at trap one underscore if you want to check out some of the more recent issue um issues episodes that's the word i'm looking for and um you can also um find those on your podcatcher of choice now guys where can we find you andrew where can people find you uh Oh, where can they find me? Oh, um, yes, where, on the internet. Wherever, if, if wherever they've left to... me, um, you can find me on. You can find me on Twitter. Um, I think I'm Andrew. Am I Andrew at Twitter dot com? I don't know. Just type Andrew Kerno in. If there's a picture of a cat, it's me. I'm on Facebook as Andrew Kerno. Uh, just type Andrew Kerno into Google. If you don't find a bishop in Australia, it's probably me. Does that help? How about you, Daniel? <laughs> Yeah, that does. Thank you. I think that covers it. Um, well, at the moment, I'm sat at the bottom underneath oh. our stairs. But um, uh, where I, I'm, I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Daniel Knight seventy three. I think, which is which was the year I was born. It's not my IQ. And um, yeah, I'm on Facebook and and things. But uh, I've I've done a few of these podcasts now and thoroughly enjoy them. I've done a couple of of the hamster podcasts with Joe and we. Looked at Destiny, the Daleks, and uh, Frontier in Space, and one other. Oh, yeah, New Earth. Yes, which I'm, um, had a bit of trivia, which I'm never going to live down, but there we are. So, yeah, and look, looking forward to doing doing some more of those. And how about you, Dave? And I'm on I'm on Twitter under Chemovores Capital R Us. I was trying to make it sound clever, but some folk on Twitter didn't get the joke. <laughs> how it's R Us as opposed to Russ. <laughs> uh, I thought it was clever, but, but okay. Uh, but yeah, he mavors capital R us, and I'm on Facebook, and I've done a couple of hamsters as well with Joe. So if anyone fancies checking them out, great. We can find out all about the creature from the pit. Yes, yes. We can we? So with some more David Fisher love. Absolutely, and the rattle, of course. We'll talk all. We yeah. talk all about a rattle. <laughs> <laughs> how could you not with Joe <laughs> <laughs> that's before we mentioned the wheel feeds but anyway too much information <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter I'm at Cy underscore heart and if you want to hear me um, explaining why I love the Leisure Hive so much then you can check out the hamster with a blunt pen knife commentary I did on that one so which was my very first so yes there we go So thank you very much for listening, everybody, and good night. Good night. Good night. Been a pleasure. Good night. It's great fun. Thank you very much. (laughs) 